Grace and peace, y'all doing all right? Good. I am Jonah. I am a pastoral fellow here at Salem Prayers. Uh, I feel more like um, Robert De Niro in that movie, The Intern. I don't know if you guys saw that. Uh, waited a little late to do that. Huh? Um, but uh, God is still good. Um, this week, uh, for me, uh, just was pretty tenuous. Most of you uh, pretty well know that. Um, uh, in large part, um, on Monday, um, I had the opportunity to meet with um, members of the administration, of course, over at Winston-Salem State, and uh, just to, to try to discuss uh, what it would look like to bring RUF, which is Reform University Fellowship, to campus. And if I can preface that a, a little bit, um, the Thursday before this meeting, Ben and I had the privilege of, of just meeting on campus and just taking the opportunity to pray. And right before we were getting ready to leave, Ben asked, he said, well, what is it specifically, Jonah, before I leave, what can we pray for? And I said, you know, I had this guy, I've been trying to meet with him, he's the key to having any organization or anything on campus, and said, well, we gotta pray for this meeting. And uh, we pray. Um, standing um, in the center of campus, and we finished that prayer, and we're just talking, you know, just generically about this sermon today and, and what's to come. And you wouldn't even imagine, not even two minutes after finishing this prayer, who walked by right in front of us. It was the vice president. This person who we had been praying and calling and sitting in his office trying to, to get in contact with God, literally, instantaneously answered that prayer. And so as I went into this meeting on, on Monday, um, just nervous, I'm like, God, you know, how are you gonna work this thing out? I, I don't know what I'm gonna say. I, I, I don't know what their thoughts are about uh, the organization as a whole, uh, what they think my perspective is, you know, what is it that, that how are you gonna work this out? And, um, God has this, this weird way of um, just working things out in our favor. Because as I was walking into the building, there was a young lady getting off of the elevator. And um, mind you, I've heard all this time that Winston-Salem State, in terms of ministry, is, is a dead zone. It's, you know, they're not interested. These aren't people who want to receive anything like this or anything like that. But coming off of this elevator is a young lady who has a t-shirt on. And on this t-shirt, I don't know if you remember the message that I preached last time. It was, a, it was a message entitled, Jesus is Better, right? And so this young lady had a t-shirt on, and, and on her t-shirt, it had Jesus, the greater than symbol, sex and money and power. And I'm like, God, okay, what, what are you up to? And so I go into this meeting about five minutes later. I've been praying. I had this set up this meeting uh, through prayer. I see this young lady with the T-shirt on with Jesus is better, this thing that has been brewing in my spirit for some time. And I get into this meeting, and while I'm absolutely convinced that I'm needing to convince them that they need RUF, they're trying to convince me finding out, well, when are we getting this thing started? They said, not even that. When can you come and preach in the center of campus? 
this wasteland, God has opened the door for us. So I want you to just continue to pray. Romans 8, 28 says that all things work together for the good. I want you to continue to pray that, that all things will continue to work out in our favor. We're working now to, to continue to gather students. We're working to, to find a campus advisor. And I just want to let you know that God does answer prayers. Amen. I, I come from a bit of a Pentecostal perspective, and I, whenever we see that, we, we, we clap and we shout a little bit. And it's okay to do that, all right? It's all right. So um, I know some of you are thinking, um, me preaching this message today, Isaiah 53, like, didn't this dude preach this already? And uh, whenever Ben told me that, that's exactly what I was thinking as well. Like, <laughs> I kind of went over that already, but um, preaching a message like this again um, lets me come back. It lets me reflect a little bit on, um, on, on how I've learned and grown since that previous message. Um, but the best part is, is the feedback I've received from you guys. Um, and kind of notoriously in that message called Israel a hoe in that message. And uh, I'm sure you probably remember that. And what, so I had somebody after that service come to me and say, say, I, I never thought I'd hear somebody say a hoe in a sermon before, which is, is kind of odd because they made it better this week. And they said, uh, you got any hoes in the sermon this week? <laughs> and, um, you know, what kind of message would this be without a hoe somewhere? Um, <laughs> I guess it would just leave me uh, without it, though, to, to talk about maybe some weird metaphorical empire. So, yeah. Um, the Bible, though, is an absolutely amazing book. It's a collection of profound works from various authors. It spans uh, thousands of years. The Bible is stories like the book of Job. And the book of Job is, is probably one of the most interesting books in the entire Bible, simply from its first chapter alone. If you know anything about it, it's just to kind of summarize what, what, what takes place. Uh, it says that there's this dude named Job who loves God. He's a pretty rich dude. Um, but uh, the sons of God are coming in to see God himself. And they coming in, you know, to God. And we think, you know, this has got to be this amazing presence. But of all the people who would be coming with him, Satan himself is coming with the sons of God. How weird must that be? I mean, it has to be kind of like Neriah and, and, and my son, you know, just these sons of God coming in, and they had to be completely annoyed. It's just like tagging along your brother. You, you can't even go into the presence of God without Satan himself tagging along. But what's even weirder, though, is the conversation that God himself has with Satan. Because... God says, Satan, where you been? And Satan responds, he's, I've been chilling. I've been walking on the earth. I've been, I've been doing me. And, and the weird thing, though, is that God asks Satan this question, but he's God. So whenever we see God in, in Scripture ask a question, we know he already knows the answer, right? But another of those stories is, is the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath um, is a story about his boy who's a shepherd. And uh, as the shepherd, uh, Israel and the Philistines are at war with each other. 
And Goliath is this big dude that the whole army of Israel is afraid of. And somehow they manage to think it's a good idea to send this kid out there to fight. And so David goes out to fight. He kills uh, Goliath with a rock, cuts off his head. But the funny part in that story is, mind you, these grown men, they're standing on the sideline, and all of a sudden they say, yeah, we did it, we did it. But David alone was the one who fought it. It was David alone who was there. But they took the credit for it. The, another one of those Bible stories that, that I found pretty interesting is the story of Samson. Samson, for me, is like a bad action movie. Samson begins like one of those old Chuck Norris's movies, you know, where he's like by himself just beating up a whole army, right? But what makes it bad is it's like when he gets and he falls in love. And we know what happens in movies like that whenever uh, the action hero falls in love. We know he, she's going to either be the reason where he's going to have to, you know, find a way to save her. Or she gonna turn out to be the one crazy herself and he really needs to get out. And in case you were wondering if there were any holes in the message today, whoop, there she is. <laughs> because Delilah, this love interest, sells out uh, Samson's secret. And the Philistines capture Samson and they decide to have a party. We're going to show Samson off. Because finally we figured out his secret. We, we got him in bondage. And so Samson is in chains in this building. And he prays. He's, God, this, this one time, let, let me defeat my enemies. You gave me the strength, God. One more time, let me do this. The reality of Samson's story, though, is that, that he knew he would have to make a sacrifice, but he knew that that sacrifice in overcoming his enemies, meaning that he would have to sacrifice even himself. The Old Testament shares these stories to reveal a unified message. It's a message of both grace and salvation. If you don't mind, let me ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell them that Jesus gives us grace and salvation. Jesus gives us grace and salvation. Isaiah 53 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's a primary example of how we come to see Jesus as the central theme of all of Scripture and expressing the, the centrality of, of how uh, important this text is in, in light of all, this, all of Scripture. The reformer Martin Luther says that every Christian should be able to repeat this passage by heart. Isaiah writes this passage, though, 700 years before it takes place. He, he reveals both the deepest and the loftiest thing in all of Scripture and what comes in the person and work of Jesus. The root of all Christian thinking is found in this passage here in the Old Testament. 
Ben has shared, though, how, how the book of Isaiah is best seen as being divided into two sections. There's, there's chapters 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66, uh, creating a very long, detailed, magnificent book. The first half of the book, verses chapters 1 through 39, speak to God's pending judgment. And we know that both biblically and historically, Isaiah is right. And that judgment comes in the southern kingdom uh, being placed in the captivity about 100 years after Isaiah wrote this book. The second section of the book, though, seeks to reveal God's work of both grace and salvation for people of God. It's 27 chapters of rich, sublime Old Testament prophecy. Jesus, as the suffering sovereign, answers the most crucial, essential, critical question that anyone could ever ask. The answer to the question has nothing, though, to do with health. It has nothing to do with wealth, nothing to do with success, nothing to do with education or morality or well-being, philosophy or sociology or politics. It's the question of how a sinner can stand in the righteousness of God. It's a question whose answer is only found in the scriptures and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Isaiah uses a term that the Bible translators translate as servant, but as I study the text, I, I, I thought of a more appropriate term would probably be slave. And as I looked into it further, one of the reasons it is most often translated as servant is because we want to reflect the willingness in which Jesus comes to earth and sacrifices himself. It's like Luke 19 and 10 says that Jesus came to seek and save to lost. He gives himself for us. We are confronted, though, with the unique relationship of the Trinity in, in, in Isaiah 52, 13, because Jesus is referred to as my servant. He's referred to as a slave of God. He is being sent by God, yet maintains equality with God. Their servant comes to act wisely, though, which is different from me because my mom always used to say, boy, you don't know how to act. But Jesus comes knowing how to act wisely. For Jesus to act wisely is for him to ultimately succeed. John 12, 38 through 41 connects these passages as a reflection of how not only does Jesus succeed, but how he now reigns in glory. The servant's suffering was astonishing. He was marred, nothing good to look at, nor was he considered uh, anything that people wanted to see. His beauty alone stood in the beauty of the cross. God himself endured such grotesque suffering that he was no longer even identifiable. God's desire has always been for all people. The sprinkling of the nations is a reflection of the cleansing of, that the servant brings to all people. Matthew's great commission is only a reflection of God's heart from the origin of humanity. Isaiah prophesies that even the kings would shut their mouths because of Jesus. And I have to make sure that we include presidents too. These are the leaders of a very real empire. They are all in subjection to Jesus. Isaiah 53 begins with another of those rhetorical questions that we already know the answer to. The us, though, are a faithful few. 
They are a remnant of Israel who remain faithful while their peers fail to recognize the call to repentance. The arm of the Lord is, is the power of God in action, is the conquering of sin and death that only the suffering servant could achieve. It is the righteous redeemer turning the wrath of God away from us and placing it on himself. Jesus as the suffering servant did not come in richness of royalty, but Isaiah says he came without form or majesty. This servant was common and ordinary. He, he was not anything that people considered intriguing, making him unimpressive, even in a failed culture like our own. While the founders of other religions seek to tell us how to find God, only Jesus comes as the suffering servant, the source of both grace and salvation, the one true God who has come to save you. He alone is the God who orchestrates an eclipse of the sun and moon, the God who spoke the world in which we live into existence, the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He alone is the God who calls us sons and daughters, loving us so much that, that he would send his son as the suffering servant for us. He's the God alone who can help my Tar Heels win a football game. <laughs> Jesus was despised and rejected. And any glimpse, though, through the Gospels speaks to this very obvious truth. Isaiah says that if that they hid their faces from the servant. And we know we only hide our faces from the things that we don't want to see. This is something that we're all guilty of. Every time we see injustice in the world and we refuse to act, we too are guilty. Verse four through six are the heart of the passage. Often we read the Bible and we manage to disconnect ourselves. But let me be clear here. Isaiah 53 is a passage that speaks directly to us. Note that all of the first and last word used here in this passage, he says that we all have sinned. We all have gone astray. We all have missed the mark. We all have turned to our own way. We all without Jesus are damned to hell. The language our and we here is to be explicitly clear that this message is as much for you and I as it was for its original audience. Surely these things are true. Jesus is our substitute. And like those grown soldiers who watch from the sideline, we watched Jesus die on the cross. Jesus takes on the bitter consequences of our sin. Notice, though, it is God himself who is the ultimate source of the sufferings of the servant. In fact, he, he takes pleasure in it. I said this in the message last time, and in case you forgot, his suffering is for our good. Look, though, specifically at Isaiah 53, verse 6. He says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep. Sheep, 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 sheep. I have to be honest, if I was going to be called an animal, one animal I wouldn't want to be called as a sheep. 
Sheep aren't exactly known for being the brightest crayon in the box, right? Sheep continually need to be looked after. Sheep are gullible and defenseless. The reality though, if I'm honest with myself, as I hope you are with you, the most accurate depiction of who and what we really are is sheep. See, every time we watch pornography and masturbate, we are sheep. Every time we continue in an adulterous relationship, we are sheep. Every time we act on those same-sex desires, we are sheep. The suffering Jesus endured, we rightfully deserve. The punishment of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. Though it's a bit foreign to us, to Isaiah's original audience, uh, this act of substitution was something that, that, that would have been, you know, very well recognized. It was pretty common. I mean, since the law of Moses had been instituted, it was common practice to see animals sacrificed for the sake of sinners. But God laid on Jesus our sins. That is the definition of the doctrine of substitution in its simplest form. It's the heart of the gospel. He took place on Calvary's cross, dying for me. God laid my sin on Jesus that I might have grace and salvation. Every bad thing you've said, every unkind word you've spoken, every mean thing you've ever thought about, every lustful fantasy, every evil imagination, every bad attitude you've had since birth until the day you died, Jesus bore on the cross. Peace with God, the healing of a broken relationship with him was secured in the death of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 speaks to Jesus' oppression and judgment. It was oppression and judgment, though, that, that, that led Jesus to the cross. Jesus was uh, consistently judged. He, he was judged from, from all sides. He, Jesus said, hey, you from Nazareth. Jesus was judged. Jesus, you're Mary and Joseph's son. Jesus was judged. Death was undeserved by Jesus. He dies in complete innocence. The death of Jesus we can directly connect to its fulfillment in the Gospels. We see things like the, the, the uh, grave being buried in a rich man's grave, and we know that this comes true. Notice, though, that Jesus suffers without violence. In fact, when he is being arrested and, and his disciples are ready and engaged to fight, he says, no, this is not the way. The reality is Jesus' death on the cross is a peaceful protest against an empire of Satan and sin. Only Jesus can bring justice to the injustice that we have brought upon ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we are called to rebel against a very real empire. Jesus, though, it says, 
conquers the empire without deceit. Jesus, who is truth, speaks complete truth. And let me remind you that as covenant people, we are called to always speak the truth in love. For most of us, the greatest way to personally fight oppression and judgment is to simply fight deceit in our world. You fight deceit. If you are to fight deceit, you can't go into the voting booth and forget about me. You can't support a failed education system that has continually failed boys that look like Moses and little Jonah. You fight deceit by not supporting a culture of beauty that tells my little girl that that without blonde hair and blue eyes, she isn't beautiful. You fight deceit by making sure my wife doesn't have sleepless nights waiting on me to come home from work. Not because she's worried about improprieties, but because she worries that those sworn to protect and serve haven't chosen to do so for men who look like me. You fight deceit by making sure my mother never has to watch the news again. To see Charlottesville, Virginia, where her son loves and leads a gracious church with his wife and and two small children to call me and say, who's going to protect my babies? I don't expect you all to go marching in the seats, in the streets. I do expect you to fight the deceit. The easiest way to do so, let me encourage you to fight deceit at your dinner table with your friends and relatives. To fight the deceit with your coworkers and classmates. That you would continually be reminded of your covenant with me and always fight deceit by speaking the truth in love. Jesus is the answer. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of God. For the sinfulness of man to be pardoned, yet without his holiness being compromised. Verse 10 tells us that it was the will of God that the servant endures such great suffering. It was a divine appointment that led Jesus to the cross. Death is not the end for the servant, though he alone has everlasting life, and for those he has chosen to reconcile to himself, he has made this reconciliation available to us. The result of the servant's Suffering is satisfaction. His triumph secures for us grace and salvation that he alone can give. The servant's death provides for us the perfect satisfaction for sin and guilt. To wisdom, though, it says that, that the servant has wisdom. The greatest explanation I found in scripture for this wisdom is in Daniel 12 and 3. It says that the wise are those who know their God 
But it's not merely a knowledge that is academic, but a knowledge that, that is personal and intimate. The wise are those who, who are channels for others to find righteousness. Righteousness, though, is more than, than an acquittal. It is a relationship based on right relationship with God. Jesus alone fulfills this. The servant is also victorious, and we know this because he fulfills his mission. But like a great king returning from battle, he, he doesn't seem weak anymore because he returns in great strength. He, he is no longer seen as without majesty because he now returns in honor. He alone is victorious, giving us both grace and salvation. No other God has wounds. Jesus bore the cross in incredible pain. Jesus suffered, we believe, more than 12 hours of complete torture. He was arrested in the middle of the night. He was slapped in his face. He was pushed around. He was mocked. He was crowned with thorns that dug into his scalp. He was beaten with a strap studded with bits of bone and stone and metal. His beard was ripped out. He was forced to carry his cross. He had nails driven through his hands and feet. Jesus was crucified. Jesus is priest and sacrifice. He is suffering and sufferer. He is conqueror and intercessor. Jesus is the channel of God's grace to sinners. Jesus is the holiness of God and the mercy of God perfectly reconciled. Jesus is the key for all of God's plans for his people. And if I can, just for a moment, just to go back to when I was a little boy growing up in, in, in church, let me ask you to run to the cross. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. Because only there will you find both grace and salvation. Y'all be blessed.